It's usually my day off, and uh, I was out mowing the grass a few years back, and uh, Catherine came out and said, it's a funeral home. Well, you don't want to hear that on your day off. My members have always had strict orders not to die on my day off. So, uh, you know, I thought, oh, man, who's in trouble? I stopped the mower, and I went in all sweaty, and it was the funeral home saying that this woman had died, and they gave me a name of a person I'd never heard of. And I said, I'm sorry, you have the wrong pastor. I was rather glad about that. And they said, well, she's not a member of your parish, uh, but she's calling for you. Her, her daughter is. And if you would get dressed and come down here, I think it would make sense to you. So I took a shower and put on a suit and went over to the funeral home. And sure enough, there was an elderly woman who died in her 102nd year. And she had an 80-some-year-old daughter that was there grieving. And she was asking me to do the funeral. Well, I said, I'd be glad to help, but why did you call me? She showed me her mother's large print television Bible, and it was full of news clippings from an article that I've written for, written for almost 30 years now in the Burlington, North Carolina newspaper. And there were clippings there on how to be sure you're a Christian, what is heaven like, uh, all kinds of articles about loneliness, discouragement. How can you refuse to do the funeral for a sweet little 102-year-old lady who's been reading your news column for all those years? So I said, of course, I'd be glad to help your mom with the funeral, but I don't like to do funerals cold. Tell me about your mom. And I'll never forget the litany of woe of that woman's life. She was born in 1898. That's a long time ago. She had gotten married when she was 15. When World War II broke out, her husband went to fight in the trenches of France and was shot dead. His body never found, buried somewhere in an anonymous grave in Flanders Field. She was left as a widow to rear three kids alone. During that time, she remarried and she and her husband went through the Great Depression. She informally adopted two more kids that were rather motherless. And then World War II broke out and her husband was drafted and went to drive in the Red Ball Express in Germany and France. He was strafed by the Luftwaffe, shot dead, and he was buried overseas, never came home. Single-handedly, she put five kids through William and Mary College in Virginia. And to make ends meet with her small pension check, she scuttled coal for the downtown fine Richmond, Virginia hotel. Later in her life, she found out she could play the piano by ear. I don't know how you do that. But she never missed for 21 years playing the piano for a little Baptist church south of Richmond called Midlothian. Her children grew up and scattered all across the, uh, the nation to find work. Two of them died, one of a flu epidemic and one in a car crash. She hardly ever missed that little Baptist church that she loved so well. But in her 90s, she was broken into, beaten and robbed, and left for dead. And it was three days before anybody found her. That's when the kids got together from across the country and said, what are we going to do with mom? She needed to go in a retirement home where she could be supervised. And the only one they could find with an opening was 50 miles away from the eldest daughter in Burlington, North Carolina, her other daughter living in Winston-Salem. And there, her house was broken up. All her stuff divided among strangers or her family. And she spent the last 11 years of her life 
in this little retirement home. And since she couldn't get out to church and pined away for the little Baptist church she loved so well in Midlothian, her solace was reading the gospel out of the newspaper that I was writing. Now, when you think about that lady's life and you think about the everything of her life, Bring that into lockstep with the text that says we know that in everything God works together for good. Think of the everything of that lady's life. Uh, widowhood twice, three children of her own, two adopted, the death of two of her children, the Great Depression, wars without end, being beaten and robbed and left for dead, stripped out of the church that she loved so well to live in the simplicity of a retirement home. It's rather overwhelming when you think of the disappointments or sufferings of that lady's life. Now, some televangelists will tell you that if you become a Christian, you'll prosper your way to heaven. That you're a king's kid, and if you ever have a pinprick of difficulty, all you have to do is pray and God will dump some money on you or perfect health upon you. But God's children don't suffer, they say. They glow and they go from triumph to triumph through life. That's not what this woman experienced. And that's not what the text is saying. We know that in everything, the good, the bad, and what's in the middle, the so-so, God is at work for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. My Bible tells me that it's first the storm and then the rainbow. That it's first the cross and then comes the crown of victory and glory in heaven. Now back to the text again. We know that in everything God works. Doesn't the Bible say in six days of Genesis time God created the heavens and the earth? And the seventh day he what? He rested. And here the Bible says we know that in everything God works. What day is this? What day does that make this? It's what we call in theological circles the eighth day of creation. Now college students sometimes point this out as a disappointing incongruency in Scripture. Doesn't the Bible say God is resting after working six days? So how is it he works here? Which is it? He's resting or he's working? You may remember an episode in Christ's life when he's healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, are there not six other days to do these works of God? But the seventh is sacrosanct. It's a day to rest. And Jesus said, my father worketh still. And we must work the works of him who sent us, for night comes when no man can work. And what Jesus is saying is that God's not resting anymore. In this fallen world of sin that has the everything of the good and the bad, the ugly and everything in between, God is dissatisfied with the pain of this world too. He's come in Christ to share it with us. And he's come in Christ to bring his divine redeeming strategy. Now, you've got to ask yourself... Even if you're not a theologian, how effective is God at working in the everything of this life? I can remember playing football for Furman University my freshman year, sitting on the end of the bench, and we were getting beaten by Davison College, 71 to nothing. The coach looked down the end of the pine, and he saw this eager freshman there, and he said, Kratz, get in there. Well, I got in there, and we got beat 81 to nothing. I was in the game, but I didn't make a difference. We still lost. And there's some who believe that God is like that. You've got to love him because he cares about you. And he's gone to work in this sinful world. 
But he can't handle it all, at least not yet. Maybe someday he'll get control of it again. But the world's spun out of God's control. There's some people who believe that. But that's not what the scripture teaches. Back to the text, if you will. It says in the Revised Standard Version, we know that in everything God works together for good. Now, in the Greek, the phrase works together for good, you have the word synergio. That's one of the few places where the ancient Greek is lifted right out of the ancient language and plopped down in your laps and mine as our modern English word synergism. We know that in the everything of life, God is at work with synergistic powers. Now, what in the world is synergism? Synergy means the sum equals to more than the parts. So it literally translates, we know that in everything, God works so that the sum equals more than the parts. Now, that in $3.50 at Starbucks will buy you a cup of coffee. What good does it mean that God works that the sum equals more than the parts? Let me give you some examples of synergy. There's this AIDS cocktail that AIDS victims take, and it's got four or five medicines mixed together. You could take each medicine separately and it wouldn't do you any good. But if you take them simultaneously, it's able to knock out on some level the HIV virus. Or if you take the paintings of Vincent Van Gogh and you look at them closely, there are many different techniques of the brushstroke. There are slashes, little model dots, there are splashes of color, there are smears. And any of these brush techniques alone wouldn't make a classic painting. But you combine them together, the sum equals to more than the parts. Or let me give you an example that ticks with me a little better. We all know that a ship floats, right? Well, what is a ship made of? Let's take the disparate parts of the ship, all the pop rivets that hold the, the plates together. And let's make a neat row of them out on the Atlantic Ocean this afternoon. What happens? The rivets sink. Let's take all the steel plates and the girders that make up the ribs and the shell of a ship and let's stack them neatly on the Atlantic. What happened? They sink. Let's take all the portholes and pancake them together and put them gently on the Atlantic surface. What happens? They sink. Let's take the big screw, the propeller that's made of brass and it weighs tons, and let's gently put it out on the waves of the Atlantic. What happens? It sinks. Yet an engineer can take these disparate parts and assemble them together into a ship that not only floats, but that moves forward through the water. Now, I don't know about your life, but I can speak about my life. The betrayals, the stupidity, the sins perpetrated against me, the sins I've done against others, the depression, the frustration, the vexation, all of the woe in my life. And there's some of these that would just sink me if I stood alone in my own power with these things. But I have a life that's assembled together by Jesus Christ. It has meaning and order to it. And somehow my life not only floats, but it's able to move forward in the gospel of Jesus Christ because of his synergistic power. Now, if I were writing this promise... I think I would have written it to sound like this. We know that in most things, God is able to work with synergistic power. Rather, the Apostle Paul wrote it, and he said that we know that in all things. Do you know what all means in the Greek? All. Nothing is outside this grace. Not bankruptcy. Not failure. Not divorce. 
Not an early fatal illness. Not rejection. Nothing is outside this grace. We know that in everything, in all things, God is able to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to these his purposes. Now, the Apostle Paul who wrote this was not a Duke divinity professor living in an Eiffel Tower of idealism. He was a man rejected by his own people, beaten and left for dead, beaten with rods, whipped with a cat of nine tails, a lifelong single man, perhaps, who endured a long prison sentence. And he said, we know that in the mix of life, in the everything of life, God is at work so that the sum is equal to more than the parts. He has synergistic power. Now, this is a promise of God. And you need to understand that there are two types of promises found in the Scriptures. They're what we call conditional promises and unconditional promises. There are very few, but there are some unconditional promises in Scripture. The Lord sends the rain on the good and the evil. That's an unconditional promise. The Lord gives rain as a gift when he chooses. Most promises in Scripture, however, are what we call conditional promises. Listen to this one from Proverbs, if you will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And what's the promise? He will make your path straight. Do you want a straight path? Then trust in the Lord. In all your ways acknowledge him. Lean not to your own understanding. He takes the hard part. I'll make the straight path. You trust in me. You meet the condition. I'll fulfill the promise. John 14 is another conditional promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. Now, what's the condition? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Have you ever been uh, busy with a grandkid in one arm and your car keys in the other and your bag of goodies from the grocery store and you're trying to get out the door? And you come to the door and you step on this plate and what happens? The door automatically opens for you. It's a wonderful provision, isn't it? And the promises of God are like that. You step up in faith and meet the conditions and God promises to do the hard part to fulfill his promises to you. This text, this great promise that in everything of your life God will work with synergistic power is a conditional promise. Now, what are the conditions? Listen to the text again. We know that in everything God works together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. To love the Lord, that's the great commandment, isn't it? And to be called according to his purpose. Now, did the Apostle Paul love Jesus? Not at first. But he came to love him on Damascus Road when he was slain in the spirit there, knocked off his donkey into the dust. He asked life's two most important questions. Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me do? Well, he fell in love with the Lord he loved. And he also learned that God would have him be the first missionary to Asia Minor and later to Europe. He was called according to God's purposes. Now, the thanks Paul gets for this is two Herculean mission trips and a third one when he's arrested, falsely accused, and thrown in prison. 
And here Paul sits in prison, not for months, but for years, falsely accused, itching to get out and fulfill the Great Commission, but he can't because of the prison bars. What good came of the everything of his prison experience? Well, two things. One, who guarded Paul while he was there? The Praetorian guards. They were chained to him for six-hour stints a day. What do you think they talked about? The gospel, the meaning of life. And many of these Roman centurions were converted to Jesus Christ while guarding Paul. I've been to the north of Scotland, to Hadrian's Wall there in the north of England, and I have seen where these Roman centurions took their baths, where they had their forts. And carved into the masonry, I've seen the cross, the ichthus, the Cairo, the great symbols of the Christian faith. Many of these, Paul's disciples, are disciples of Paul's disciples who carried the gospel as the first missionaries to the remotest parts of the Roman Empire. A second thing that God did in the everything of Paul's prison experiences was cause the New Testament to be written. Much of that Bible in your lap was written from Paul's jail experience. He had time to write, to think, to meditate. And rather than sit there glum and depressed and trying to get people to be interested in his cause, he was interested in people's causes. And he wrote them letters of refreshment and theology and encouragement that we've collected together into the New Testament. Now, I seriously doubt that Paul lived long enough to fully comprehend how the Lord Jesus was synergizing his prison experience. I think he may have a glimmer that some of the things he wrote were going to be helpful to Christians hither and yonder, but he had no concept that these soldiers were carrying the gospel that far and that this thing called the New Testament and our Lord and Savior was being written by his pen. But we can look back with the hindsight of 20 centuries and say God did a wonderful thing in causing Paul to slow down and spend time in that hellhole of a prison. Now, if you're like me... You're saying, you know, Stephen, that's clever. And I would like to believe with some of the things that I have to face on Monday morning that there is a God afoot in the universe who can take to everything in my life, some of the really fearful bugaboos that are waiting for me tomorrow, that he can take them in his hand and squeeze them and shape them in a better way than my fears tell me they're going to happen. And you've got to give me more than one example for me to believe that. Because I know you preachers, you're clever, you can make things sound good, but come Monday, it doesn't live all that well. Give me another example, please. Well, I'll give you the one that we read from Genesis, the 50th chapter. The story of Joseph. His name in Hebrew means he adds. And he can add a lot to our life with the same view of the sovereignty of God's hand. Joseph, when you first meet him as a teenager, he wears something like a, a madras coat. And he preens himself spiritually in front of his brothers. I had a dream last night, brothers. Your corn stalks bowed to mine, but mine stood upright. My star rose in the heavens, yours fell before it. What do you think about that, brothers? And they said, well, come on out in the field and we'll show you. And they beat him up and stripped him of his coat and threw him in a pit. They were tired of his lip. They were immature. He was immature. They were going to let him die there, but some Midianite caravanners came by and offered some money for him, and they sold their brother into slavery. That's not a very pretty picture of a church family, is it? But that's the genesis of who we are. We come out of such dysfunction. 
When Joseph ends up in Egypt, he's sold to Potiphar. He's falsely accused of rape and he's thrown into prison. And there he languishes, not for a year, but for years. And he begs God to get him out. And God says, no, but I'm going to mature you in your afflictions. Later, the Pharaoh dreams. And nobody can interpret the dream. But word comes to the Pharaoh that there's one Hebrew in, in, in prison that can not only tell you the meaning of your dream, but he can also interpret it for you even before you tell it to him. He does that for Pharaoh, and in a single day, read the story yourself, he loses his prison chains, and he gets a chain of authority. When his brothers come down looking for food, they don't recognize him at first, and he plays with them. And he sees that they've matured. They're not the same brothers they used to be, and he knows he's matured. And later, when um, he divulges who he is to them, they think, oh, we're dead now. We did him wrong. He's going to off with our heads. But in Genesis 50, he says to him, Don't fear me, brothers. What you did, you meant for evil. But God meant it for good. Do you see his confidence even before Romans 8.28 that God is a synergizing God? That he has sovereign power? You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Now, some of you are sitting there a bit skeptically saying, you know, that's clever. And it's Sunday, but Monday's coming. And there's some honey of issues waiting for me and my family tomorrow. Can you give me one more example? Just one more? I will. I'll give you just one more. The greatest example of all. The cross of Jesus Christ. We meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. From the cross, Jesus looked down on us at our most ignorant, demonic, rebellious selves. But on the cross, we see God at his most forgiving, gracious self. And in synergistic power, he took that awful instrument of torture and death, the death that we deserve for our sins. And through the power of atonement, and through the power of the resurrection, we who meant it for evil, God took it and made it for our salvation, for our own good. We need to close with this great promise of God, with the two words that we began with, we know. We know that in all things and in everything, God works together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Those two little words, we know. You're looking at a 60s type guy. I don't type. I don't word process. I don't do computers. I still write my sermons out on the back of a clipboard by hand. My wife is a typist. I have a secretary. And they're good at it. I'm not. But she was gone the other day, a few years back, and I had this magazine article due, and I was word processing it by the Christopher Columbus method. Do you know that? You discover the keys and you land on them. And um, I had just about gotten this two-page article massaged into form. And the telephone rang. Well, I'm a frugal type of guy. I like to save power. So I just cut the computer off, realizing this phone call was going to take a while. When I cut the computer back on, my article wasn't there. It had evaporated. My wife came in a few hours later and I said, What is this dumb computer? I gave it all this work and it lost it. And she said, when you cut it off, you have to enter it. You have to push the word save. And preaching is the same way. You can hear the promise of God. It can come in and delight you with great aplomb. 
But it can go in one ear and out the other. Unless you push that little button in your soul, enter. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. One of the men said to Jesus in Scripture. And I'm inviting you to push that button in your soul this morning. Will you pray with me? Think for a few moments, if you will, of some of the disappointments, the heartaches, the issues in your marriage or with your children, with your career, perhaps even in the church, things that are totally out of your control, things that fill you with fear and foreboding. And I want you to offer those up to the Lord. Lord, this is the part of the everything of my life. Lord, I fear it will sink me. I fear that my life will end up a heap of despair. But I want to trust you, Lord, to work in the everything of my life with great power and meaning. And I give you these things, Lord. Forgive me for worrying over them. I give them to you with childlike trust and abandon. I have done the things that I can do something about. And I leave it to you, Lord, for the things that I can do nothing about. Take my life, Lord, and hide it in the merits of Christ. Take everything and cause me to trust you. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.